Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Jeremiah's complaint. You're always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the faithless live, live at ease? You have planted them and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Yet you know me, Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart from the day of the slaughter. How long will this land lie parched? And the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in this are wicked. The animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying, he will not see what happens to us. God's answer. If you raced with men on foot, and they have worn you out. How could you compete with horses? Or if you stumble in a safety country, how will you manage in the thickets by the, by the Jordans? Your relative members of your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them. Though they speak well of you, I will forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of their enemies. My inheritance has come to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me, therefore I hate her. Has not my inheritance become to me like a speckled bird of prey? The other birds of prey surround and attack. Go and gather all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds will ruin my vineyards and trample down my field. They will turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. It will be made a wasteland parched and de desolate before me. The whole land will be laid waste because there is no one who cares. Over all the barren heights in the desert, destroyers will swarm. For the sword of the Lord will devour from one end of the land to the other. No one will be safe. They will sow wheat from reap thorns. They will wear themselves out but gain nothing. They will bear the shame of the harvest because the Lord's fierce anger. Sorry. Not got it on my sheet for some reason. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, Jenny. It's okay. Where am I going now? The right. Just go see where I am. Sorry about this. I can lie in the forest. No, it's This is what the Lord says. As for all of my wicked neighbors who seize the inheritance I gave to my people Israel, I will uproot from their lands and I will uproot the people of Judah from among them. But after I uproot them, I will again have compassion and bring each of them back to their own inheritance and their own country. And if they learn well for the ways of the people and swear by name, saying, As surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught by people to swear by Baal, 
then they will be established among my people. But if my nation does not listen, I will completely uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. Amen. Our second reading is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 to 33. Paul boasts about his sufferings. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident, self-confident boasting, I am not talking as a lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are wise. In fact, you even put put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone declares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ's? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Otatus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall, and I slipped through his hands. Amen. Thank you. So the theme today is, where's God in the bad stuff? So the two readings we've just heard cover some of the difficult times. The first from Jeremiah and then from Paul, and times that they'd faced. And, And we will look at those a little bit more closely as we work through this. It's a difficult subject, I have to say. I nearly chickened out many times as I was preparing even this morning, I was thinking, shall I talk about something else? It's hard. 
sometimes we have to talk about the hard things. And every time I turned to something more light-hearted, I just got pushed back again. So to illustrate the points this morning, I'm going to talk about um, a book and a, and a film, The Shack. Uh, it came out in the cinema this week. Um, but I just want to make the point that the sermon isn't about the shack. The shack is an illustration. The sermon is about the Bible. Now, I first read the shack many years ago, just about the time I was first becoming a Christian. And and then I was struggling with some of the big questions. So it covers things like, what is the Trinity? Why does God allow suffering? All of those, you know, some of those big questions. And what I got from the shack then, and, and still do now, is that there is an answer. Now, I'm not saying that the answer in the shack is the right answer. I'm just saying it's an answer. It can help us. It helped me tremendously to think about what might, what, you know, where God might be in all of this and what, what it might mean. It's an answer that, for me, fits in with what the Bible tells me. And it's an answer that shows that God is love. The story of the shack is, to me, it's a parable. It's about a man who's called Mackenzie Allen Phillips Mack. His daughter, Missy, is brutally murdered and he sinks into a great depression. He loses his faith in God. He's losing his family. And one day he gets an invitation from God to meet him at the shack. And we've got a picture now uh, from the film. And what we've got there is Mac, who's the, the guy in the sort of yellowy shirt jacket thing. And he's with God, the Trinity of God. Um, now it's a slightly unusual depiction of God. Um, and, and this is one of the, you, you know, if you, if you look at what online about the shack, there's an awful lot of controversy. And one of the reasons is because for a lot of the book and the film, God the Father is depicted as a black woman. Um, so that's God the Father there. And then on the other side, we've got Jesus. And then on this side here, we've got the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit there, obviously re- re- represented by this Asian lady. And, and <clears throat> so within the, within the story, um, Mac refers to God the Father as Papa, and he refers to the Holy Spirit as Sereu, uh, which apparently is Sanskrit for breath or wind. Now, the Shack is a massive selling book. It's sold over 22 million copies. That's more than George Orwell's Animal Farm. It's more than Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And despite the book's claim to be a work of fiction, it gets a lot of criticism from the church. Many Christian leaders call it heresy. So that's another reason why I want to make the point that I am not preaching on the shack. 
I'm using, using it to illustrate the Bible. You need to make your own minds up whether the book is heresy or not. As I mentioned before, one of the major complaints is that it, it depicts God the Father some of the time as a woman. But, and, and obviously, you know, we all know that God the Father is a white man with a grey beard. Definitely not a black woman. Now, so, you know, we laugh there, and for me, that's why I don't have a problem at all with God the Father being a black woman. We know from the Bible, the Bible very clearly says that all of us, whatever size, shape, color, man, woman, we are all made in the image of God. There are seven billion of us roughly on the planet at the moment, and I don't see any problem with representing God the Father as any one of those. God is all of those and none of those. In Luke chapter 15, the Bible says, well, it's a, Jesus says, in fact, it's a parable, and it says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Now, my interpretation of that is that the woman is God. And the coins are us, God's people. And if one of us is lost, God comes to, seeks to find us again. So, to me, it's not heresy that, that in a parable, God the Father is represented as a woman. Other criticisms of the book are that it promotes universalism. Now, universalism is where some Christians believe that everybody goes to heaven, no matter what. Now, I don't think that's what the book says. That's not what the book says to me. It's not what the Bible says to me. I don't know whether everybody goes to heaven. My belief is everybody gets the opportunity to go to heaven, that everybody is redeemable. And that's what I think this book says. That it's, the, you know, it's interpreting the Bible and it's saying that everybody is redeemable, no matter how bad things are that we might have done. When we read the Bible, we read about King David. King David is, he was the king of Israel. He, you know, there's a huge amount, of, he has a huge presence throughout the Bible. He was a murderer and he was an adulterer. So, I very much recommend that you read the book or, and or see the film. For me, it made a tremendous difference to my journey of faith. Maybe it will, maybe it won't for you. As we start to dig deeper into the theme and think about some of the terrible things that happen in the world it can be really difficult to see God in these situations. And I have to say, you know, now let, let me set expectations. This 15, 20-minute sermon is not going to provide all of the answers. It's just going to provide an insight, I hope. 
mean, some of us, me included, may have thought when we saw the situations in Manchester and London un- unfolding, you know, where was God? Why didn't he do something? You know, the, the guy in Manchester with the bomb, couldn't God have made it not go off? Couldn't he have made it faulty? Couldn't he have made a wire snap? The van on the bridge, couldn't it have had a blowout? Tip into the Thames, maybe kill those horrible people? Didn't understand. Why doesn't God stop these horrible things happening? And these are the questions that Mac in the film and the book is asking. So in the clip we're about to see, he's, he's with God, he's needing bread. Really he's indicting God, he's saying... If you are almighty, why did you let this happen? Where were you? Let's have a look at the clip. Somehow, you let my little girl die. When she needed you most. You abandoned her. I never left her. If you are who you say you are, where were you when I needed you? Son, when all you see is your pain, you lose sight of me. Thanks. Clearly, Mac feels abandoned by God. You know, we watch those scenes of terrorism and it's, you know, there's been others since then. They're the ones that have been really close to us. There's others around the world all the time. We feel abandoned even when we don't even know perhaps anybody personally who's, who's directly affected. For me, one of the people killed in Manchester went to the college that's next door to the building that I work in. That, that's as close as it got for me. But even there we think, why didn't you stop it? But it's not just us in the Bible. You know, we we had our first reading and Jeremiah is saying, why is it that all the wicked people do well when good people suffer? And, you know, he he asks the questions that, that perhaps we might ask. He says, you know, I know you're, you know, you're righteous, Lord, but... Let's just have a word about justice. Why do the faith why do the faithless live at ease? Why do the wicked prosper? You've planted them and they've taken fruit. They've taken root and they bear fruit. You say he says, You know me, you know I'm trying to be good and 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 you see my thoughts about you and how I love you. But yet you're not dragging these people off. Why don't you take them away, kill them? How long do we have to suffer because of all these bad people? And then God's answer. Now, you know, I, I suggest reading. I, too, I, I read this answer from Jeremiah probably 20 or 30 times, and I read various commentaries and things. It, it's not that easy to understand, or I didn't find it that easy to understand. And the first bit where God says, if you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? Now, what, what I picked up from that is 
what God is saying is, if you think this is bad, wait till you see what's coming. So that's not a great start to the answer. And he says, you know, if you stumble in a safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? So again, you know, you think it's bad. And he, and he talks about even your family um, betraying you. And then starts to talk about his family, his people. You know, my inheritance has become like a lion in the forest. She roars at me and talks about um, <clears throat> Israel's uh, response. Uh, therefore, I hate her. Um, and, and goes through, you know, many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. And I wonder there, you know, is he talking about, is he talking about us? Is he talking about the church? And he goes on to say, towards the end, they will sow reap, sow wheat, but reap thorns. They will wear themselves out, but gain nothing. They will bear the shame of their harvest because of the Lord's fierce anger. So I think he's saying. Who says they're prospering? Who says that they're doing well? Who says they're bearing fruit? God knows the full picture. We don't. And right at the end there, he says, if they don't listen to me, then they're in trouble. They're gonna, they will perish. So, you know, I, it's not an easy passage to understand that's my interpretation of it the um, <clears throat> yeah and I think what, he, what God is saying there is that we have to trust in him we don't see everything that God sees we don't see through God's eyes we just see a glimpse of it and we don't see how others will be convicted or treated. What we have to do is trust God and focus on our behaviours and our minds. In our second reading, Paul was talking about all of his hardships, all of the things he's been through. When he referred to the 40 lashes minus one, what, what they decided in those times was that 40 lashes was the number that would kill somebody. So if somebody received 40 lashes minus one, it meant that they were going to be whipped to an inch with the life, but not, not actually killed. And there's loads of other stories like that in the Bible by people of, of people who, who felt abandoned and, and couldn't, couldn't see God in their situation. You know, Abraham, Moses all went through those times. And even Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there he was using the words that David used in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries and anguish? My God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. In all of these situations, God is saying, we can trust him. We can trust him. He is always there. He's always with us. He doesn't do any of these things, but through them, he does do immeasurable good. You know, nobody under any circumstances would say that the bomb in Manchester was a good thing. It definitely wasn't. But look at the good that's come from it. The, <clears throat> the massive outpouring of love, 
that we saw people helping each other, refusing to be drawn into hate, people putting themselves out for others, giving food and lodging, people driving other people, emergency services rushing into danger. For that one act of barbarism, hundreds and thousands of expressions of love come back. But what of God? What of his heart? Is he to blame? Is it God's fault? Should he have done something different? In the next clip, Mac is meeting with wisdom and he's being asked to judge who is to blame, who should be punished. What about the man who preys on innocent little girls? Is that man guilty? I would damn him now. And what of his father? The man who twisted him into this deviant monster? I would damn him too. How can you stop there? Doesn't the legacy of brokenness go all the way back to Adam? And what about God? Isn't he at fault? He set all this emotion, especially if he knew the outcome. Absolutely. God is to blame. Well, if it's so easy for you to judge God, you must choose one of your children to spend eternity in heaven. The other will go to hell. So that, that's a tough clip, isn't it? It's a tough thing. That, as a father, how could we choose one of our children to spend eternity in hell? And as that scene progresses, he's pushed and pushed and pushed. Who is he, which of his children is he going to send? And in the end he says, send me. I'll go to hell. And, and that's what a father or parent would do and that's what God did that's what our heavenly father did he put on flesh he became human and he was sacrificed for us in 1 John chapter 4 it says this is how God showed his love amongst us he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So this leads on to the next question then. So if, if God has promised that we will be forgiven, excuse me, and he was sacrificed in the form of Jesus on our behalf, does that mean there's no consequence? Does that mean we can do anything? We're forgiven. God says we're forgiven. We believe that. It says it over and over again in the Bible that Jesus died for us, so we're forgiven. 
in this last clip, Mac is again talking with God the Father, but this time it, it's, a, it's a part of the film where God the Father is in a male form. So it's still God the Father, but looks different. See, so you, you just let him get away with it. Nobody gets away with anything. Everything bears consequences. What he did was horrible. I'm not asking you to excuse what he did. I'm asking you to trust me to do what's right and to know what's best. And then what? Forgiveness doesn't establish your relationship. It's just about letting go of his throat. Mac, the pain inside is devouring you, robbing you of joy and crippling your capacity to love. I can't. You're not stuck because you can't. You're stuck because you won't. So Mac is asking that question, is he just getting away with it? If he's forgiven by God and if Mac forgives him, does that mean that he faces no consequence? And back in our first reading, Jeremiah, that was the question Jeremiah was asking. Those people who live a good life have it hard. Those people who sin prosper. They do better than anyone else. But God told Jeremiah, and he's telling us, there are always consequences. Just just because Jesus died to atone for our sins doesn't mean that there's no consequences what it means is that we can be redeemed we can ask forgiveness and we will be forgiven but there will be consequences and that includes consequences for us forgiveness tells us we won't be condemned but it doesn't say we get away with it but more than this, the Bible tells us we need to forgive. And this can be a real challenge. If we can trust, but if we can trust God to handle the judgment and hand that over to God, then us giving forgiveness can be bring us tremendous healing and release. In Romans chapter 20, Paul goes even farther. And he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a bit like the advice that many of us got when we were children to, to kill with kindness. So where I end up is, I believe God is always with us. He knows the bigger picture far more than any of us do. 
we can trust in God. God loves us unconditionally. Forgiveness does not mean no consequence. But we will be forgiven. We should forgive others. God loves us. And we can trust in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. Your unconditional love. We thank you for your patience. We know we try it at times. We thank you that we are forgiven and that we can trust in you. Help us to follow you. Help us to trust you. Help us to forgive others and help us to love our enemy as we do our friends. Be with us as we go through life in the bad times and in the good times. Give us your peace. Give us your joy. Give us your love, your laughter. Father, just thank you. You are love. Amen.